all you have. You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello, Galactic Adventurers. It's me, Kyle, your celestial guide for Tales from Across the Stars. Here to welcome you to the most awesome Star Wars show in the galaxy, Star Wars Audio Archives, your interstellar journey to the Tales of the High Republic. Strap in for part 10 of Light of the Jedi, where we dive even deeper into the Cosmic Saga. After the whirlwind of part 9, we are set for an odyssey that will take us to new heights of excitement and wonder. Are you tingling with anticipation? I'm as ready as an X-Wing in a dogfight. So secure them space harnesses, folks, because our next leap into the galaxy awaits. Are you ready? Then let's go. Elfrona. Quarter angle bent low over the neck of his steely, whispering to it, even as he calmed its shaking muscles with the force. You are a luminous being, he said. There is no pain. There is no fatigue. There is no fear. You are light and speed. And there is nothing in this world more beautiful. I am here with you. We are together. We will do great things. We will save this family. The blade of his lightsaber hummed as he rode, chasing the bastards who had kidnapped four innocent people from their very home. What had Loden called them? The Nihil. Porter Engel was not angry. He had been a Jedi for almost three centuries. He knew all too well where anger could lead. He had found a better way to express his emotions when faced with situations like this. He was not angry. He was certain, certain that a great injustice had been done. Certain that he could set it right. And most of all, he was utterly certain these Nihil would never do anything like it again, one way or another. He had taken the point position, riding a little ahead of Loden Greatstorm and Belzettifar. He liked them both. Loden had a sense of humor about things that was very welcome among the Jedi. Porter had met many in their order who took things far too seriously. Life was long, and they had the gift of the Force. Why be stoic? The vows didn't mean they were dead. And Bell... <laughs> Bell was a wonderful young man. Still figuring himself out, but he was only 18 years old. He shouldn't know very much about himself at that age, anyway. But someday, he would be the kind of Jedi held up as an example to future generations. <laughs> Assuming Loden didn't kill him in training first. Porter brought his focus back to the task at hand. Jagged ironstone slopes scraped up to either side, and the way ahead narrowed. The Jedi didn't slow, but they brought their steelies into line. Moving through the canyon single file. The Nihil, with their captives, were still some distance ahead. But the Jedi were gaining. Wouldn't be long now. They recalled battles long past. Pulled up strategies for hostage situations. The Nihil clearly thought the family was valuable. And wouldn't want to hurt them unnecessarily. That gave Porter and his team an advantage. 
Still, they would need to move fast. The best would be for one of them, Loden probably, to use the Force to yank the family free of the Nihil, while he and Bell moved on the kidnappers. Odds were these Nihil had never fought Jedi before. Most people hadn't. And even if they'd heard stories, mere words couldn't do the experience justice. So they might not know how foolish it would be to try to fight using blaster fire. A blaster bolt fired at a Jedi was essentially the same as shooting at yourself. The tiniest whiff of danger, whether some signal from the Force or just long instincts honed from many other rides through many other narrow canyons with enemies on the horizon. The sound of a blaster rifle firing. Porter Engel whipped up his lightsaber, moving to deflect the attack. But it was not aimed at him. His steely reared up, pain filling its mind and heart and echoing through Porter. He pulled back his link to the animal and leapt free as it crumpled to the ground, digging up furrows in the hard dirt with its metallic hooves. He somersaulted in midair, using his lightsaber to knock back a few more shots. The Nihil had clearly hidden themselves up in the hills, waiting to ambush the Jedi. Porter landed. Cowards! He spat. More blasts rained down from either side. But now he had the angles figured, and the angles and pace of blaster fire told him the story. Only two shooters. Keep going! He called to Loden, who had slowed his mount slightly. Don't let the other Nihil get that family to their ship! I'll take care of these monsters and join you as soon as I can! Loden nodded without a word, and he and Bell raced ahead, deflecting a few errant shots as they went. Porter Engel stood alone in the canyon, the body of his dead mount not far away. A noble animal who had only done her best. You think you're smart, eh? He called up. Shot my steely right out from under me! Silence from up in the hills. No shots, no movement. Perhaps they were, in fact, smarter than he gave them credit for. They were undoubtedly circling around, trying to get a bead on him from a new spot. Let them. He shouted up toward the tumbled rocks above. Before you killed my Steely, I will admit, I had not decided how to deal with you. All possibilities were on the table, but that creature lived in the light. And you stole it away. You had no right. Thank you for showing me exactly what you are. Makes things much simpler for me. He rotated slowly, his lightsaber up, scanning the hills. He knew what was going to happen. Anyone who aimed for a man's mount, rather than shooting at him fair and square. Anyone who attacked from ambush was also the sort of man who would... Blaster fire! Three shots! Right at his back. Of course. Porter spun, blocking the first, the second, and sending the third right back from where it had come. Movement from up in the rocks, and he leapt, higher than he was sure these nigh-hill cowards would have thought possible. Straight up, and he saw the man who had shot at him. 
Order threw his lightsaber, and it sliced out a spinning disc, inescapable. An Ihill sniper ducked behind an ironstone outcropping, thinking it would shelter him. It did not. The blade sliced through the rock, and then it sliced through the man. And Porter regretted that a living, thinking being, a child of the Force, had made choices that brought him to such an end. The second ambusher shot at Porter before he had landed from his great leap, and before he could retrieve his lightsaber. He was in midair, without his primary form of protection, making the situation a bit complex to handle. But Jedi lost their weapons from time to time, and any Jedi Knight worth the title put in the hours developing strategies for unarmed defense. Porter Engel reached out with both the Force and his hand, palm out, and deflected the bolt back, sending it caroming back off toward the hills. Not strictly necessary. He could have pushed it away with his mind, or frozen it in place. But flicking a blaster bolt away like an insect, it made a certain statement. I saw you, friend! He shouted up, calling his lightsaber back to him. Saw right where you're hiding! The hilt smacked into his hand with a whack. He always felt utterly satisfying. His thick fingers slipping into grooves worn into the metal cylinder from tens of thousands of hours of practice and combat. And soon I'll see you again, he called. Porter Engel sprinted toward the hill, moving faster than the Nihil could probably see, leaping up and over from side to side. No more blaster bolts. He had a feeling the surviving Nihil had thought better of this whole ambush and was making a run for it. When he made it to the top of the rise, he learned that he was right. The Nihil was sitting on another steely, trying to get the beast to move, digging his heels into its sides. He wasn't shouting at the poor creature, its head down and hooves dug in hard. He knew better than to make that kind of noise. But Porter knew that under ordinary circumstances, he'd be cursing at it, using every horrible oath he could dream up. I bet you're the one which shot my animal, Porter said. The Nihil whipped around, his blaster firing, and the conflict ended the only way it could. Porter was utterly certain. The Nihil toppled off the steely, a smoking hole through his mask. Porter Engel wasted no more time on him. He deactivated his lightsaber and slapped it into his holster. Then approached the traumatized steel, his hand outstretched. Hey there, fella, he said. You are a luminous being. What do you say you and me go do some good? The steely looked at him, its eyes wide. He touched its flank, and it calmed. He wrapped his hands in its bridle, preparing to heave himself up into its saddle. And then, the Nihil with the hole through his mask sat up. He lifted his blaster to fire. And Porter Engel realized the raider was probably of some species that kept its brain elsewhere in its body, meaning he could survive a headshot. Meaning that Porter Engel, whose hands were occupied with the steely, was about to die. These thoughts ran through his head, along with an odd moment of sadness about a refinement 
to one of his pie recipes he would now never get to try. And he prepared his spirit to join the force. A black, gray, and red-orange blur leapt off the rocks directly at the injured Nihil. Ember! Porter Angle thought in astonishment. He'd forgotten all about her. The Charhound opened her jaws and a huge gout of yellow flame spat out, enveloping the Nihil before he could bring his blaster to bear. A strange hollow scream emanated from the raider's mask, and he rolled on the ground, trying to put out the fire that had consumed his body. Ember did not stop. He just continued torching the Nihil until at first he stopped screaming, and then he stopped moving. Then she closed her mouth and patted up to Porter Angle, who gingerly bent down and scratched her behind one ear. She felt hot, like his oven back at the outpost. He supposed that made perfect sense. She must have followed them all the way from the wrecked homestead. He and his fellow Jedi so focused on pursuing the Nihil, they hadn't thought to consider who might be pursuing them. Good girl, he said. Very good girl. Porter climbed aboard the Steely, and he was off, headed down the slope at a ready pace, with Ember lopping alongside, racing after Bell and Loden, and the family they were trying to save. Loden Greatstorm and Bell Zedifar had steadily gained ground on the Nihil they were chasing, but had not completely closed the distance. Now the kidnappers' ships were visible, parked on the rust-colored sand just outside the no-fly zone. Two looking like welded-together piles of cubes and spikes, and both marked with the three lines they'd seen on the door of the Blythe homestead. The Nihil had almost reached the vessels, along with their prisoners still being pulled along in the little cart. We'll never catch them in time, Bell said. I know, Loden said. He removed his hands from the reins of his steely, but the creature didn't slow its strong gallop, sparks shooting up with every step. Bell assumed his master was steering his mount via his knees and a judicious application of the force. In a single smooth motion, Loden swung the metal tube he had salvaged from the wrecked vanguard around his body, placing it atop one shoulder. He pulled his lightsaber from his holster, slapped it against the flat plate connected to the tube's electronic components, and the power unit on the far end lit up, glowing gold, the same color as Loden's blade. Bell realized what Loden had taken from their vehicle, the Vanguard's laser cannon, its kyber-keyed anti-ship weapon. He held his breath. He couldn't believe this was about to happen. Loden fired. Bones of golden light shot from the end of the tube, like a lightsaber blade, but somehow denser, more there. The edges of a saber blade faded out into an intense whiteness, but this blast thickened, darkened into an amber, like the first rays of an autumn sunrise. And the sound! Bell heard it with his bones, not his ears. In the moment of the weapon firing, all other sounds ceased. Bell's steely reared up, and he had to fight to get it under control. And so he missed the bolt's impact. He heard it, though. 
an utterly unique sound of metal being overheated in an instant and flashing into vapor, followed by two distinct thunks. When his mouth was gone, moving forward again to catch up with Loden, who steely hadn't missed a step, of course, Bell saw what the weapon had done. One of the Nihil's two ships had been sliced in half. The middle section of the vessel just gone. The two remaining edges had fallen to the ground. Sparks and flame already shooting up from the superheated edges. Whoa, Bell said. He nudged his steely to greater speed and called ahead to load it. Get the other ship! I can't, his master answered, pointing ahead with the smoking weapon before tossing it to one side, where it clattered onto the hard metallic soil and was left behind in an instant. Bell looked where Loden had indicated. He understood immediately. The Nihil had realized the danger to the one ship they had left, their last remaining escape route, and had repositioned themselves, moving the cart containing the kidnapped family so it was directly in the line of fire. The Vanguard's cannon wasn't a precision weapon, at least not removed from its housings in the vehicle. He couldn't risk the shot. It would almost certainly hit the family. Maybe for the best, Loden said. If I'd fired twice, the whole thing might have blown up in my hands. I had to leave the cooling module back with the V-wheel. What are we going to do, Master? Bell asked. Whatever we can, he replied. Not reassuring. If Loden Greatstorm was out of ideas, things were dire. They were getting closer to the night, and the complications of the situation were starting to overwhelm Bell's ability to plan. He would have to trust in the Force, let it guide his choices. Something happened up ahead. Bell and Loden heard a blaster fire, and a moment later, a person was thrown from the cart. The Nihil sped on, leaving the body lying motionless on the hard ground. That wasn't a Nihil, Bell said. No mask! Did they kill one of the hostages? Loden remained silent. The Jedi raced forward, details becoming clearer with every meter. The victim was the mother. She's alive, Bell said. I can still sense her. As if to validate Bell's words, the woman lifted an arm from where she lay. A weak, painful gesture, even at a distance. Beyond her, the Nihil had almost reached their ship. The Jedi reached the woman. They pulled their steelies to a stop and leapt from the saddles. She had a smoking hole in her side. Probably non-lethal. At least, not right away. Please, she said. Her voice small, thin. My children, my husband, please, you have to. We will, Loden said, his voice confident. Whether real or for the woman's benefit, Bell did not know. What is your name? Erica, she said. Erica Blythe. Loden reached a hand toward her blaster wound. Erica. I can help you with your injury, using the Force. I can stabilize you long enough to get you back to our outpost. There's medical treatment there. But... my family... She said, her voice getting stronger as Loden did what he could for her wound. We'll save them, he said again. 
across the hard pan. All three heard the same sound. The Nihil ship's engines activating. No! Erica Blythe cried, trying to struggle to her feet. Belle didn't know what she thought she could do, but the despair in her voice was deeper than any pain she might still be feeling. Loden stood, taking his lightsaber from its holster. What is it, Master? The Nihil ship took to the air, moving up and away quickly. Loden ignited his blade. The ship curved in the air, turned, and headed back, straight for them. Are they going to kill her? No, Loden said. She was bit. They knew we would stop to help her. They're going to try to kill us. The Nihil starship whipped toward them. Brutish. The three lightning strikes painted on its hull in reflective paint, gleaming in the harsh glare of Althrona's sun. Get behind me, Padawan, Loden said. Protect Erika. How? Bell thought. That's a starship. But he was dutiful. Lacking any other ideas, he placed himself between the Nihil ship and the injured woman and reached for his lightsaber. Loden changed his stance putting himself side-on to the approaching starship. His front knee was bent, and he held his saber hilt in both hands. He looked like a dura-steel wall, unbeatable. But that's a starship, Bell thought again. The Nihil fired, a rain of blasts from their ship lasers. Most went wide. A person was a small target for a starship, but a few were dead on. Loaded great storm roared, a battle cry echoing out into the empty deadlands of Alfrona. His lightsaber flashed, too fast for Bell to understand what he did, and the laser bolts whipped away. Loden's feet skidded back, kicking up rust-colored dust, and he grunted as if he had been hit hard in the stomach by a huge, heavy maul. He fell to his knees, his saber blade flickering out as the Nihil ship whipped past overhead. Master! Bell cried. I'm all right, Loden said. But I don't think I can do that again. Bell looked up. The Nihil ship was coming around for a second attack run. He lit his lightsabers, the green blade flicking into humming, buzzing life. He turned side on to the starship. He bent his front knee. He made himself a wall through which no evil could pass. There's no way, he thought. If Loden can barely do it, there might be no way. There was also no choice. Bell reached out to the force. Laser fire high in the air. Five shots. Bell braced himself, looking inward, not up. A new sound. An explosion. Like a cough, muffled. That was... He snapped his head up, just as two Jedi vectors overflew the Nihil starship, which was now leaking thick black smoke from one of its engines. They circled around in an incredibly tight curve. The two craft drift, and as they bent, Bell saw that only one of the ships actually had a pilot. Indira! Loden said, 
pushing himself painfully to his feet. By the light, look at her go! In awe, Bell realized what he was seeing. Indira was flying both ships. Some of the vector's functions could be operated remotely via the Force in cases of extreme emergency. But operating was one thing, and piloting was another. Indira was mirroring her motions in her own vector in the second ship. A feat of concentration Bell could barely comprehend. It was spectacular! The Nihil seemed more terrified than impressed. Their ship jerked up and headed for open sky, accelerating slowly, trailing smoke. The two vectors came in for a landing not far from Bell, Loden, and Erica. Not as smooth as they might, skittering along the ground a bit before coming to a halt. But considering what Indira was doing, Bell was not inclined to criticize. Both cockpits opened, and Indira stood. Come on! She cried. We can try to catch them before they make it to the hyperspace access zone and jump away. Loden turned to Bell. I would bring you, Apprentice, but you have to get Erica back to the outpost. You have two steelies. Once you're there, put her in the med bay and... I know what to do, Master, Bell said. He wasn't disappointed exactly, but he knew where he could help the most. And it wasn't slowly and carefully taking Erica Blythe back to their outpost. He won't make it, came a voice. Bell and Bloden turned to see that Porter Engel had appeared, as if from nowhere, Ember at his side. A third steely stood nearby, and the ancient Jedi was down on one knee next to Erica, with his hand hovering above her wound. This is serious. She needs treatment on the way. I'll have to take her back. I'm the best medic of the four of us by far. Loden wasted no time. The Nihil were getting farther away with every second. May the Force be with you, Porter, he said. Well, with me. He ran toward the waiting vector. It's time to fly. Deep Space. Republic Longbeam, Aurora 3. Pika Adrian stretched, feeling her muscles ease a little. She wanted to ask Joss to rub her shoulders, but the 39th emergence was set to happen soon enough that she didn't want to risk him being out of the pilot's seat when it happened. They still had a few minutes, but there was no reason to take a chance. Her husband could give her a massage later, assuming later ever actually arrived. Somehow they'd been swept up in the efforts to solve all the backscatter from the Legacy Run disaster. And that was all well and good. They were getting hazard pay, and doing something noble besides. But they were supposed to be on vacation. She had booked them a trip to Amphar once their shift helping to build the Starlight Beacon was over. And those days had come and gone. She'd lost the deposit and had no idea whether the Republic would let her expense it, and... Ugh. She was annoyed at herself for focusing on something so petty. She and Joss were literally saving the galaxy here, or at least a good chunk of it. But still, she was supposed to be on a beach right now, wearing something tiny, sipping something delicious, lying next to her handsome husband, who was also in something tiny. Thinking about 
Later, when they would both ditch even those tiny things and think of inventive ways to make each other feel good. You ready, my darling? Josh said. He sounded excited. Clearly, he wasn't thinking he'd rather be on a beach. He lived for this stuff. But really, she thought, so do I. A couple of spanner-slinging contractors out saving the Outer Rim territories? Doing it together? Doing it in style? Not so bad. Ready, my darling, she said, putting her hands back on her console. I just checked with the rest of the team, Joss said. Everyone's good to go. Whatever pops out, we can handle it. Baker murmured in agreement, pulling her mind away from Amphar and back to the task at hand. Somehow, the Republic had figured out how to predict where the emergencies were going to happen. She'd heard a story about some sort of mega-processor made out of tens of thousands of droids linked to the Force that could predict the future. <laughs> but that surely had to be nonsense. In any case, they had identified three spots as the most likely candidates for where the Legacy Run's flight recorder would emerge, and had set up a team to intercept them, one after the other. Other teams were working to recover potential survivors from other emergent sites. It was possible some could still be alive in passenger modules despite the length of time since the original disaster, and all efforts were being made to bring them home. Those missions were obviously hugely important, but the flight recorder was crucial. It would provide information about how the ship had been destroyed in the first place, and help prevent it from happening again. The hyperspace blockade of the Outer Rim was still in effect, and Pika knew that many worlds were hurting. She'd heard rumors of food riots in the sinkhole cities of Utapau, even though Chancellor So had authorized special aid shipments. And of course, Starlight Beacon's construction had finally been completed, but the dedication and official opening were on hold. As a matter of professional pride, that stung a bit. That place would be beautiful and helped so many people. She and Joss had worked hard on their little part of it, and she wanted to see it operational on time. The retrieval team included four long beams and two Jedi vectors. It was her old friends, Teami and Mikhail Sutmani, which made sense. After all, the four of them had devised the techniques used back in Hetzal that had saved the fruited moon during the original disaster. They'd refined those ideas, and now, whatever happened, they'd be ready for it. Pika thought this emergence would probably just be a piece of wreckage. Nothing interesting about it. If so, they could just let it go. They were in an uninhabited region of space. Far from anything to which a chunk of former starship might pose a threat. Weapons hot, she said. Everything else is good to go. To mad clamps, fuel looks good. The whole deal. Great, Joss said. As soon as we're done here, we'll have to zip away to the next emergent spot. We'll barely have enough time to get there. You really think we might get in a fight? She asked. I doubt it. But you know what happened at Iriadu? Someone else out there predicted an emergence too. Three, actually. We're looking for a ship called the New Elite. A modified Corvette. Admiral Carnara went over it at the mission briefing. 
We don't know how they're involved, but there's at least some chance they might show up here, too. We need to be prepared for anything. If we get into a fight, we get into a fight. Privately, Pika was planning to just let the Jedi handle it, if it came to that. She wasn't afraid of a firefight, but she was basically a mechanic. She was more than happy to leave combat to the highly trained space wizards. Here it comes, Joss said. 39th emergence in five, four, three, two, one, Belial said from his post at the monitoring station. There it is. Scan it. And tell me if it looks like a flight recorder, Lorna D said. She was standing with her arms crossed on the bridge of her flagship, the Lorna D, looking out at the little fleet that the Republic had put together for their little mission. Bunch of heroes. Hooray! Lorna D loved her ship, and that was why she had named it after herself. Anyone who had an issue with that was welcome to discuss it with her. So far, no one ever had. Each of Martian Rose Tempest Runners had a personal warship, a testament to its owner's taste, as well as the possibilities inherent in the Nihil as an organization. Work hard, hunt well, follow the paths, and you too might someday own a customized battlecruiser. Kossov's new elite felt like the interior of a trashy nightclub. Pan Ata's ship, the Elegencia, was beautiful, with surfaces covered in soft leather, lighting designed to perfectly accent every lovely little tasteful design choice he made. The Lorna D was unique in a completely different way. The cruiser was outfitted with all sorts of devices and shielding that made it all but impossible to pick up on a scan. Heat baffling. Ablative plating. Double-sealed engines that recycled almost all of its exhaust signature into the ship's life support and weapon systems. And more. It cost her a pile of credits. But it made her Tempest flagship nearly invisible to even the most powerful sensors. Usually, an attack by the Lorna D went like this. The enemy pilot thought, Wait, where'd that ship come from? and then they were blasted into vapor. Here? <laughs> well, it remains to be seen. The Lorna D packed enough punch to take out four long beams and a few wispy little vectors, if she could take them by surprise and kept moving. But that could mean revealing her ship, and that was not on the menu for this operation. The Tempest Runners were in rare agreement when they voted to approve this mission that Ihill needed to avoid any suggestion they were connected to the emergencies or the legacy run. There were two reasons for that. First, obviously, was Kossov's massive screw-up at Iriadu. His stupid attempt at extorting that planet, the one that had gone so wrong and was so obviously a shot at taking the entire proceeds of that job for himself, shone an unwelcome spotlight on the Nihil. The Iriaduans had splashed Kossov's name and the specs of his ship all over the holonet. While there was no direct connection to the Nihil, that was still more heat than they wanted. And after that, 
Kasev had had the nerve to come crawling back to the Great Hall. He'd offered up the 30 million credits he said he'd made on the Iriadu job and asked for protection. Pan Eta and Lorna D had wanted to throw Kasev out of the hall right then and there, the hard way. But Marcion Rowe had voted to keep him around, to give him a chance to fix his mess. Said something about how his experience might be useful, since he was an old-timer, and how his Tempest was so loyal to him. Ugh. Maybe it wasn't a good time for unrest in the crews. Mostly, though, since Kasev didn't get a vote, it was her and Pan against Marcion's two votes. And since by Nihil tradition, ties went to the eye... Ugh. Kasev was still around. The second reason this mission was so important was because of something Marcion Rowe had learned from one of his Republic spies. The primary aide to that blowhard Outer Rim Senator you always heard blathering on the holonet. Noar. According to the spy, the Republic investigation had turned up some pretty strong clues that the reason the Legacy Run blew up in Hetzal was because it encountered a Nihil ship in the Hyperlane traveling along a path. Marcion had run some data, and it all seemed plausible. Pretty unwelcome surprise, that. And now the Republic had built some kind of super droid that could run high-level hyperspace analyses gave them the time and location of all the upcoming emergencies, including some where the Legacy Run's flight recorder might show up. If the Republic investigators found it, they could probably use it to get definitive proof that the Nihil were connected to everything. Not just Kossab's botched job in Iriadu, which you could argue would have happened whether he was there or not, but also every death in Hetzal. The deaths in Abdalis and the rest. Jedi had died in Hetzal. But they knew the Nihil were the reason. <laughs> well, Marcion Rose seemed pretty wary of the Order. And Lorna D didn't much like the idea of them coming after her, either. The whole Nihil operation could be at stake. The Republic could not be allowed to find that flight recorder. They had to destroy it. Was really only one Tempest Runner for the job, Lorna D, with her stealth-equipped battle corvette. So here she was, lurking in the system Marcion Rowe had sent her to via a path, staying hidden, waiting to see if this emergence would give her a target, or if she would need to move on to the next spot on the eyes list. It's not fair, Corther, Belial said, looking at his screens. The Deveronian was just a cloud, not yet a storm. But Lorna D thought he'd level up pretty soon. The guy was smart, capable, cool in a crisis, unemotional. People like that fit right into her organization. Looks like one of the passenger compartments. Huh. One of her other lieutenants said. A human named Adamant. You think they're still alive in there? They must have been traveling through hyperspace for weeks. Lorna D didn't answer. She watched the little flares of light in the distance as the Republic team went into action, doing their heroic thing, working on a no-doubt heroic rescue. She almost gave the order to fire. She wanted to, 
A spread of missiles could maybe take out all six ships. And the legacy-run passenger compartment, too. So fast, they wouldn't have time to realize they were dead. But as satisfying as that would be, it might go wrong. And they already had enough heat on them. Marcion had been extremely clear, on the verge of actually trying to give her an order. Don't let them know you're there unless you have to. Unless the flight recorder shows up, you just move on, he'd said. She'd need to put him in his place sometime soon. There was a hierarchy to be observed. Honestly, she wished she could just take him out of the picture entirely. And if there wasn't such a good chance, she'd just end up fighting Kasev and Pan Eta, too. She'd probably take her chance. Win or lose, she doubted Marcion would blame her for it. That was the Nihil way. Maybe later. Once all this heat from the Legacy Run situation died down. Set coordinates and get us out of here, Lorna D said. Marcion Rowe had provided paths for the whole operation. Routes through hyperspace that ensured they'd get to the next location well ahead of the Republic team. And if that emergence happened to be the flight recorder? Well, maybe she'd get to kill someone today after all. That's it! Came Joss Adrian's voice over the comm. Scans confirm this 40th emergence is the bridge section that had the Legacy Run's flight recorder built into it. I'll be damned. I don't know the Republic's Megatroid figured it out, but they nailed it. Everyone get into position. We're down a long beam, but we planned for this. We'll run retrieval plan four. Based on the fragment's trajectory, that should work best. Just stay cool and do your part. Mikhail Sutmani pushed his control sticks forward, and his vector surged ahead. He senses Tayami doing the same off his starboard wing, somewhere out of range. He could see the three remaining long beams up ahead, moving into position. The fourth long beam, in their original party, had stayed behind at the last emergence point to assist the legacy-run survivors on the fragment. The traumatized settlers required medical and therapeutic assistance. A few of their number had died on their unimaginable journey, and the horror of that experience would not be easily resolved. They would be taken to the Panacea, relocated from Hetzal to a collection point near the Starlight Beacon site, where they could connect with other survivors and work with personnel now well-trained in dealing with their particular issues. The situation was awful, but at least they were alive and no longer hurtling through space toward a slow, excruciating death. Mikhail put the survivors out of his mind, refocusing on the task at hand. Their role here was much the same as it had been in Hetzal during the original disaster. Use the Force to slow the peace of the Legacy-run superstructure, while the long beams latched on with mag clamps and reeled it in. The fragment was still traveling at incredible velocity, but they'd all practiced the maneuvers many times. What was originally almost impossible was now... <laughs> well, not exactly routine, but doable. Let's dig deep for this, eh, Tayami? Mikhail said, switching to the Jedi-only comm channel, hearing his translator convert his native Ithorian speech into basic so she could understand. 
The Republic captain is confident, but we have one less long beam than we planned for. This might be more challenging than we expect. Agreed, Tayami said. Their ship swooped down toward the speeding fragment. The same arc, the same velocity, as one. I was thinking, Tayami, Mikkel said. After the episode at Iriadu, it seems clear that the Republic and the Jedi will be working to hunt down this cussive person. I was considering volunteering for that mission. It seems a good use of my skills. I was wondering if you might do the same. We work well together. That's clear. And you're a remarkable Jedi. I'd be proud to have you as a partner. Why, Mikhail? Tayami said amused. I don't think I've ever heard you say so much at once. Have you forgotten your vows? We Jedi are not to form attachments. I'm not attached, he rasped. I just think we could do good work together. Bring a little light to the galaxy. Our skills are complementary. I think I'm going to report you to the Council. Whatever you think is appropriate, he said, his voice stiff both in reality and through the translator. <laughs> she laughed. I'm teasing you, Miguel. I'd be very pleased to partner with you on a mission. If the Council agrees, we'll get out there and scour every last corner of the galaxy, looking for... The Vector's threat display lit up. Missiles from nowhere! A wide spread of them, at least a dozen, headed straight for the flight recorder fragments. What is this? Mikkel said. They're headed for the fragments. They're trying to destroy the flight recorder. Hmm. Mikkel said. Perhaps it's Kossov again. Looks like we'll get to work on that mission a little sooner than we expected, Master Teami. Seems so, Master Sutmani. Mikkel pulled his lightsaber from its holster and held it against the activation panel on his instrument console. His weapons display unlocked and went live, glowing green as it linked with the crystal in his lightsaber hilt. On his screens, he saw that the long beams were also aware of the threat. The three ships were scattering, moving into a position to try to shoot down the missiles. His systems tracked back to the projectile's point of origin to... nothing. Empty space. This many missiles implied a good-sized war vessel. But nothing like that showed up on his scope. He put the question aside. The identity of their attacker could wait. Protecting the fragment, that was the thing. Mikkel began to fire. Blasts whipping out from his vector's lasers toward the missiles. By this point, the long beams had begun to shoot as well. A combination of offensive and defensive systems deployed to either destroy or distract the missiles. It didn't matter which, as long as none of the projectiles reached the flight recorder. One of the missiles veered toward one of those defensive measures. A cloud of static activated foil emitted by one of the long beams, designed to present an appealing false target to the weapon's tracking systems. The long beam that had sent out the chaff held position, already shifting toward another target, clearly assuming the missile would explode automatically once it hit the foil. Instead, the weapon entered the shifting, spinning cloud, 
but no explosion. Mikkel sensed what was about to happen, but he was too far away. There wasn't enough time. He reached for the force, but there was not enough time. The missile emerged from the other side of the chaff cloud, impacting directly against the long beam's hull. Now the explosion came. Blast it! Came Joss Adrian's voice over the comm. Nothing else was said. The Jedi and the two remaining long beams went to work, not knowing the source of the missiles, not knowing if they would die at any moment, just doing the job they could do. Lorna D watched as a few more of her missiles were shot down or exploded harmlessly against long beam deployed defenses. She still had five left in play, though, and only one needed to hit its target. Victory was just a matter of time. She had plenty more missiles in reserve, too, though she didn't want to deploy another salvo unless absolutely necessary. The Lorna D had changed position immediately after firing, but the Republic crews knew she was out there now. There was a good chance they would lock on to the Lorna D's signature immediately if she fired again. The goal was to destroy the flight recorder and leap away. That was all. Though if it came to it, she would happily destroy every last one of these ships. And the flight recorder, too. Happily. Mikkel fired, and the missile he had targeted exploded just seconds before it would have reached the fragment. He exhaled, breath escaping from each of his mouths. Just two projectiles left, and neither was in range for him. It was up to the others now. He watched as Joss and Pika Adrian's long beam fired out those mag clamps they were always so proud of. A whole grand array. Most likely, every one their ship had, reeling out on their endlessly long, thin cables. And the missile changed course, pulled in by the attracting force of the clamps. Ingenious. The missile exploded, and while the mag clamps had certainly been destroyed, there was still one more surviving long beam and it could retrieve the flight recorder. The mission could still succeed. One more enemy missile remained, and Teami was headed toward it on an intercept course. Neither of the long beams was in position to reach it, or Mikkel himself. But Teami could knock it down. No problem. She was a fantastic shot. And indeed, a spread of laser fire shot out from the front of her vector. Off target, but zeroing in. And then... Another missile appeared on Mikkel's scopes, headed directly for... Teami. His targeting computer tried to resolve the location of their attacker. A vague, flickering outline appeared on his screens and disappeared. Whatever was shooting at them clearly had some sort of cloaking system. But that was not the primary issue. Teami, there's another missile. I can't... I see it, Mikkel. Quiet now. I have work to do. Mikhail Sutmani watched. His helplessness at the destruction of the long beam a few moments ago amplified a thousandfold. He increased her vector speed, trying to simultaneously outrun the missile racing toward her and catch the original projectile before it hit the flight recorder. Her vector bucked and wove, laser blasts shooting out. Oh, misses! As she attempted to hit her target while evading what had targeted her. Mikkel slammed his own vector forward, knowing, once again, that he didn't have time. 
He reached out with the Force, knowing that through it anything was possible. Knowing he could reach the missile chasing Teami's ship and could cause it to veer off or detonate. He could sense its speed, its outline, the metal of its casing, the superheated exhaust gases shoving it forward toward his fellow Jedi. Came Teami's voice over the comm, satisfied, content. Mikkel almost had the missile. He could feel it, almost as if it were gripped in his hand. He could destroy it. The Force was his ally, and a powerful ally it was. He squeezed the missile, and suddenly, in a blast of violent flame, it was gone. But not by any action of his. It was gone, and so was Teami. The loss hit him like a blast wave, no less intense than the one that had killed his colleague. Mikkel clenched his fists, searching his spirit for calm. His vector's targeting scopes lit up with data. The full outline and location of the ship that had murdered Teami. As well as detailed specifications of its armaments and defenses. Whoa! You guys see this? Target acquired. Battle Corvette. Ugly looking thing. Came Joss Adrian's voice. Not the new elite. Another ship. Master Sumati. How about your vector and my long beam go after it? While Captain Migolo grabs the flight recorder. Mikkel did not answer. He did not ask where this information had come from, or any questions at all. Really, he just pushed his control sticks forward as far as they would go, and his vector's engines roared in response. I have work to do. He thought. Blast it! Lorna D cried. More emotional than she generally preferred to be. The cursed Jedi had shot down her last missile before it could reach the flight recorder. Yes, that particular Jedi had died, but Lorna still had not succeeded at the mission, and it seemed like she'd probably revealed her position too. She had a long beam and a vector headed straight for her. Do we fire more missiles? Adamant asked. Yes, Lorna said. Send us rest. Everything we've got. We kill these idiots too, and then go after the fragments. The Lorna D shuddered slightly as the rest of its complement of missiles fired. Another half dozen, trailing exhaust as they raced out toward the two growing dots of light headed toward her cruiser. The Jedi, the blasted Jedi, and that blasted Vector shot down four of them. The other two were headed for the long beam. And it killed one with a laser blast, and distracted the last with a flare. Who are these guys? Belial said. He was worried. Lorna D could hear it. So, for that matter, was she. The Lorna D wasn't designed for straight-up fights. It was built to strike from hiding, kill its target, and leap away. It was light on armor, light on shields, and didn't have much in the way of laser cannons either. Could a long beam and a vector actually take out her flagship? Just those two little vessels? She decided she didn't want to find out. Kasiv, or even Pan Ada, might have tried, gotten into some sort of doomed last stand situation. 
but she was smarter than either of them. When circumstances change, you run the odds, you run the options, and then you pick the best choice you've got. And here, there was only one. Bring me back to get us out of here. We lost. Oh my gosh, was a side of squash. I feel like a rocket with endless fuel, bursting through the atmosphere at light speed. Every new part opens up a universe of heart-stopping, gravity-defying escapades, and the most out-of-this-world moments I have ever experienced. Part 10 of Light of the Jedi was like weaving through an asteroid field of surprises and marvels. Are you having as much fun as I am? Wow, my heart is beating fast. But now it's time to get to the quote of this episode, and this quote is as profound as the depths of space itself. Nathan W. Morris once shared these words, Edit your life frequently and ruthlessly. It's your masterpiece after all. Alright, let me analyze this quote for a way that it is easy to get. Your life is like a big exciting story or movie, where you're the main character, the director, and the editor, all rolled into one. When someone says, edit your life, it's like saying you got the power to change parts of your story, just like when you are watching a movie, and you are seeing the scene cut or change to make the movie better. You can do the same thing with your life, frequently and ruthlessly, means doing this often and being really honest about it. It's like looking at your life and asking yourself, is this part really good for me? Is it making me happy or helping me grow? If the answer is no, then it's like cutting that part out of the movie. This could mean stopping the things that waste your time or stepping away from people who bring you down. And the last part, it is your masterpiece after all. It's a cool way of saying your life is super important. It's like a one of a kind work of art. You get to make it as awesome as you want. You wouldn't want a beautiful painting to have a messy part, right? Same with your life. So in real life, this could mean a bunch of things. Let's say that you got a friend who's always negative and makes you feel bad. Editing your life means spending less time with them and more time with people that make you feel good. Or if you're doing something that you don't really like, like a job or hobby, changing that part of your life could make you happier. Basically, it's about making choices to make your life better, just like editing a movie to make it a hit. Remember, it's your story and you're in charge of making it great. And that's all I have for this episode. I hope you liked part 10 of Light of the Jedi, and I hope you will join me for part 11 in a few days. So until then, may the Force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. The High Republic Light of the Jedi was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs>